Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament. When you take a jet tour through Zechariah, which we're going to do this morning, you actually take a jet tour through history. So we'll do that this morning. Here's the key concept today. God remembers, God blesses at the appointed time. God remembers, God blesses at the appointed time. Muriel Anderson is an author, and she credits four words with both launching and continuing her writing career. And those four words are, of course you can, of course you can. She said, I was blessed to have a father who was willing and able to stand up at just the right moments and shout, of course you can. Whenever she faced a difficulty or faced some kind of a situation in her life where encouragement was needed, her father was her cheerleader. Of course you can. You can do it. And in a sense, that's what Zechariah is as his book opens up. He is a cheerleader for the nation Israel, the people of Jerusalem. Of course you can do what God has called you to do, and God has called them to rebuild the temple. Zechariah is a later prophet. What I mean by that is he's a prophet who is active after the people return from the Babylonian captivity. Briefly, you'll remember that the, the Babylonian armies invaded Judah, the southern kingdom, and carried them off into captivity, and they were slaves in Babylon or, or working there in Babylon uh, under the, the captive of the Babylonians, and then the Persian Empire rose to power, and they defeated the Babylonian Empire. And the Persians did not take captives like Babylon did. And so Cyrus the Great, the king of Persia, had made it available for people who wanted to return to Jerusalem. The Jews could go back if they wanted. And just a small fraction of them actually did return to Jerusalem. But they came back with the mandate to rebuild the city and to rebuild the temple. And all of that happened in 538 B.C. And they got started right away. But then slowly but slowly, they kind of petered out on the work on the temple. They continued to rebuild their homes and houses, but the temple work slowed to a halt. And it wasn't until 520 B.C. when the prophet Haggai and Zechariah come along to encourage the people, get back to the work that God has appointed you to do. You can do it. Rebuild the temple. And as we come to the book of Zechariah, that's the historical setting. That's what he's doing for the people, encouraging them to get busy. But the book of Zechariah is somewhat a difficult book to comprehend. It is filled with imagery, and sometimes it's hard to follow the arrangement of the material. So let me return you in your mind's eye to that visual of unrolling a, a blueprint. You're looking at a blueprint, and let's imagine that the blueprint, the plans that we have in front of us, is plans for a multi-story building. The, the stories of this building that we're looking at the blueprints for represents the eras of history, the passing of time. Each of the floors may be a different era in human history, okay? Now, when you roll out this blueprint, looking at the blueprint, your eyes can dart all around that, that building. You know that when the building is built, however, it will be built in order. The first floor first, then the second, then the third, each one resting on the other. That's the way the literal building will, will be built. But when you look at it as a blueprint, you can look at the top floor first, or you can look at the basement, or you can look at to the side or to the right, you see, and, and take it all in in that way, moving your gaze from floor to floor. In a sense, that's what happens in the book of Zechariah. He has a general chronological outline that we'll notice, but he, he darts his view uh, up and down this blueprint of history, and every once in a while he's talking about a different era than just even the verse before. And so it's important for us to be able to kind of follow the logic as he shows us the blueprint of history. But let's begin, verse 1, chapter 1, reading the book of Zechariah. This is what he says. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Edo. The Lord was very angry with your forefathers. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says 
the Lord Almighty. We'll stop there for a moment because the key concept for this morning is the Lord remembers, the Lord blesses at the appointed time. And I know that that sentence doesn't flow very well in English, but I want you to see where I got that key concept. And it's from verse 1. It's the meaning of the names of Zechariah, his father, and his grandfather. Zechariah means the Lord remembers. Berechiah means the Lord blesses. Edo means at the appointed time. And these names actually serve as an outline for this book of prophecy. Zechariah initially talked to the people about their forefathers and about how their forefathers used to get busy about the things of the Lord and then backslide from the work and backslide into evil. And he says, God remembers that. And God wants you to remember that and not be like your forefathers. Stay true to your calling to the following of the Lord. The whole second portion of the book is a series of visions. And through the visions, Zechariah is actually uh, communicating to the people of Israel, the Lord blesses you. The Lord is among you. The Lord is with you. He's watching you. So get, get, you can get the work done because he's going to enable you to do the work that needs to be done. And the last portion of the book of Zechariah is actually a very futuristic look. The last portion of the book of Zechariah is meant to be read right alongside the book of Revelation. And he says, at the appointed time, the things of the end will come. So those names kind of give us an outline for the book. And he begins, of course, by reminding them that they have an assignment from God, but they have stalled in their assignment. And that assignment is to build the temple. And to build the temple, they need to first rebuild their relationship with the Lord. In verse 3, he says, Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you. And that's exactly what the Lord is still saying to each one of us here today. Return to me, and I will return to you. When in your mind you, you, you visualize your heavenly Father, I want you to always visualize him with his arms wide open because he's welcoming you, ready to welcome back. If you're straying from the faith, if you're straying from the lifestyle that God would want you to live, or maybe fighting against the, his purpose and will in your life. When you turn, you will see him standing like this, wanting to welcome you back. Return to me and I will return to you. And he's saying that to the Israelites. We have a partnership together. Don't let your hearts stray and let your lives uh, walk away from the things that I want you to accomplish. And after this initial uh, reminder that they are not to be like their forefathers, starting in verse 8 and continuing uh, through a number of chapters, uh, Zechariah tells us about eight visions that he has in one night. Experiences an Ebenezer Scrooge-like night. Except the people that are waking him up are not ghosts of Christmas past, but what, what wakes him up are angels. Angels come and repeatedly throughout the night kind of shake him awake and they say, Zechariah, I want you to see this. And they grant him a, a vision. They're not dreams because dreams come when you're asleep, visions come when you're awake. And so there, he's awake seeing these visions. The first one is chapter 1, verse 8. He says, During the night I had a vision, and there before me was a man riding a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in a ravine. Behind him were red, brown, and white horses. Now, these horsemen are messengers. They're taking stock of the situation on earth, so to speak, and reporting back. And what they report back is this. The earth is at peace. So use this time of peace, Israel, to rebuild the temple. This is a window of opportunity, in other words, that you have to uh, not worry about anything else. So <clears throat> rebuild the temple. The second vision happens in chapter 1, verse 18. He says, Then I looked, and there before me were four horns. I asked the angel who was speaking to me, What are these? He answered me, These are the horns that scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Now, a Western reader is not going to understand what's going on here until you recognize that in antiquity, 
horns, the horns of animals, were a symbol for power. It was a symbol for warfare because a horned animal was able to be aggressive, okay? And in the vision, the blacksmiths come. Your NIV says craftsmen, but it should read blacksmiths come and dehorn these animals that represent the enemies in Israel. In other words, from the four corners of the earth, your enemies, Israel, are being dealt with. What's the message? God is blessing you, so take advantage and do the work that's before you. The third vision is in chapter 2, verse 1. It has to do with a man with a measuring line, and the, per, uh, the point of that measuring line is to measure Jerusalem, and the, the, the teaching of the vision is that even though Jerusalem is small right now, it is going to grow into a large and prosperous city. So you can depend on that. Again, the message is the Lord is blessing you, and it's in that vision that we find the verse that reads, do not despise small beginnings. And we, we take that to heart as we begin a project. You know, it doesn't look like it's going well, but God has plans for this project in the rebuilding of Jerusalem. The fourth uh, vision is a vision of the high priest being dressed, and that is in chapter 3, verse 1. I'm going to read the passage there because it's a striking scene. It says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan one of the very rare occasions that you actually see Satan in the Old Testament. There's just a few places, and this is one of them. Standing at his right side to accuse him, the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this, not man, is this man not a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have put, I've taken away your sin, and I have put rich garments on you. What's happening there is uh, Joshua, the high priest, who was the literal high priest at that time, is representing the people. And Satan is accusing him and, by extension, them of not being worthy to be the people of God who rebuild the temple. This filthy clothes represents their sin. And Satan is accusing, see how sinful you are? Who are you to think that you can work for God? But the Lord comes and he says, certainly you're not worthy in yourself, but I make you worthy by transforming your filthy garments to the rich garments of grace. And that's still the message of God to us today. Satan wants to accuse you to say that you are not worthy to be the people of God. You are not worthy to do works that God blesses and be the voice of the gospel in the world. He's still making that accusation. And the, the message is certainly in ourselves, we are not worthy, but we are made worthy by the intervention of God in our lives, washing away our sin and making us new creatures in Christ Jesus. And so Satan is accusing, but God is responding there as the angel removes the filthy rags. Well, there's a fifth vision. It happens in chapter 4. And uh, in chapter 4, he sees the vision of the lampstand. Verse 2, it says, I see a, a solid gold lampstand with a bowl on the top and seven lights with seven channels to the lights and two olive trees by it, one on the right and the other on the left. And I asked the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? He answered, do you not know? He said, no, my Lord. Then he said, it is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. The two olive trees on either side of the lampstand represent the two human beings that God has placed in leadership of the people, Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest. The oil in the lamp, oil represents the Holy Spirit regularly throughout the imagery of the Old Testament. And that the message to the, the nation and these men is this, I have placed these men in authority to get the job done, but they can't get the job done by their own power. It is only by the power of the Holy Spirit working through them will they be able to accomplish what I want them to do. And that is exactly the message to us today. We can do nothing that's going to have eternal impact on our own power. If it's all about talent, if it's all about ability, if it's all about smarts, we're never going to do it. There's no eternal impact going to be made unless the Spirit's anointing is on the work that we do. So that's why we bathe what we do in prayer. 
begging the Spirit to anoint the work, and He gives the increase. The fifth, uh, the sixth um, vision, I should say, is in chapter 5. It's a vision of a scroll that flies over the nation, and it flaps as it's flying, and, and there's words visible on the scroll, and the words are curses against those who lie and who steal. And the message is, you must be a people of righteousness if you're going to be used of God. The seventh vision is a, is a vision in chapter 5 of a woman crouched in a basket. The woman represents wickedness. And in the vision, the basket with the woman in it is flung in the direction of Babylon. Again, the message is, I'm watching, I'm blessing, I care for you, and I want wickedness away from my people. Throw the wickedness where wickedness is welcomed, which symbolically is Babylon over and over again in Scripture. And the eighth vision is in chapter 6 where there's four chariots uh, that, are, that are there in verse 5. It's, it's explained who they are. The angel answered me, these are the four spirits of heaven going out from standing in the presence of the Lord of the whole world. And the, the uh, vision is meant to portray the fact that as God's people are obedient to God's word and God's way, the, the message of the Lord will spread throughout the world, earth with speed. The chariots represent speed. And all of these visions carry that same sense of the Lord is blessing you. The Lord is watching you. The Lord is with you. And then in the middle of chapter 6, there is a scene that is not a vision. It's a literal scene that happens, starting in verse 9, that the high priest is crowned with a kingly crown. And those of you who read the Old Testament, you recognize that it's very unusual to see a high priest have a kingly crown. Throughout the Old Testament, these are distinct offices, king and priest. But Joshua is crowned with a kingly crown. And once we understand the setting of history, we'll understand why. Because in Judah, in this day, where Zechariah was functioning, in Judah, Judah was a province of Persia. In other words, they already had a king, and they were not on their own to crown their own king and to get their own political system going. They had a king back in Persia, and his name was Darius, and he had a big army, so they didn't want to mess with that. But they still wanted to represent some local civil authority. And so with the high priest being crowned as a king, we see the beginning of what we see all throughout the New Testament where the high priest has authority in the story of the arrest of Jesus. It is the high priest that he goes to, uh, for, for, to stand before the court. And then it is the high priest who has a, a mini police force that arrests Jesus and, and all of this. And here is where that begins, where the high priest has, has both civil and religious authority uh, vested in him. But also there's a foreshadowing here of the perfect one who is the combination priest and king, Jesus the Messiah. And that's kind of being foreshadowed there. As you get to chapter 7, uh, people come to this high priest with questions about a ritual. And the particular ritual is fasting. You see, when the Jews were taken into Babylon and Jerusalem was destroyed, they began a ritualistic fast that they would go back to over and again, mourning the loss of Jerusalem. And now they're back in the city. And so they come to the high priest with a question, how long should we fast or should we fast at all now that we're back in the city of Jerusalem? And it's actually Zechariah who speaks up uh, to answer them. And his answer is, you know what? You shouldn't worry so much about ritual, but worry about righteousness. Because you're going through the motions, but you're not, you haven't changed your heart. Go to chapter 7, verse 8. You'll hear his words. It says, And the word of the Lord came again to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. In your hearts, do not think evil of each other. Change your heart. Then let's worry about the ritual. It's basically the answer. Chapter 8 is a futuristic vision. Here's where his gaze kind of travels up that blueprint a little bit. And he shows the, the vision of the world responding to the Lord and coming to Jerusalem as the center of their worship when they worship the Lord in, in the coming end times kingdom. And uh, the message is, 
Be a people that are worthy of that future. Obey God now, right before you. And then we get to chapter 9, and in chapter 9, everything changes. Probably in chapter 9, the print in your Bible changes. Because what's happening when you get to chapter 9 is we, we begin to encounter a series of what he calls oracles about the future. Now, the word oracle means heavy. In other words, what I'm about to say is heavy on my heart. It is, it's, this is a heavy thing. And the, um, he applies the word heavy to about what he's about to say, not because it's sad, but because it is massive. It is, Zechariah gives us this massive overlook of, of, of history. And because up until now, what he's been saying was pretty much connected to the people he's talking to. He's reassuring them that they can get the work done and, and they should get the work done. But now, in chapters 9 through 14, he looks at the blueprint of history. And he gives us uh, glimpses of what's coming. Uh, and, and so he has these heavy oracles. And generally speaking, the rest of the book rolls out chronologically. But every once in a while, like I said, his vision goes to a different floor in this blueprint, okay? So, for instance, chapters 9 and 10 deal with the coming Greek period of history. That only for a very blip, short period of time were the Jews self-governing after, after the, uh, the Babylonian destruction. And, and Zechariah doesn't even deal with that. But basically, they were dominated by larger kingdoms for the rest of their kingdom, uh, history. Right now, they're dominated by the Persian kingdom, but soon it will be the Greeks under Alexander the Great. Chapters 9 and 10 talk about that period of history. Then it will be the Romans. Chapter 11 talks about that period of history. And then from 12 through 14, Zechariah goes into the far future talking about the end times period of history. And so in chapter 9, we, 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 we hear, we get a little glimpse of Alexander the Great and the Greek dominating period of history that's coming. And, and uh, you look at chapter 9 in the beginning, I won't read all the verses there, but you see a list of towns, a list of cities, Damascus, Hamath, Tyre, Sidon, Ashkelon, Gaza, uh, Ashdod. What, what you're meant to understand is those cities are cities that descend from north to south along the corridor that is uh, Israel, the Holy Land. What's being described there is the march of Alexander the Great. The, the thing, the one, he will actually take this march in 333 B.C., the march along uh, Israel on his way to conquer Egypt and then back up to conquer Persia. And he destroys all of those cities, city by city, as the armies move down Israel heading towards Egypt. But uh, I want you to notice uh, verse 8 of chapter 9. God speaks, But I will defend my house against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people, for now I am keeping watch. When he says never again, he means never again in this period of time. But what actually happened in Alexander's march to Egypt, all those cities you saw named were ruined and destroyed, but Jerusalem was spared. Historians to this day do not understand why that was. There are stories and rumors and that kind of thing, but uh, Jerusalem was spared. The city was protected as God was keeping watch over it in, in that time. But the very next verse jumps. Zechariah jumps to the Roman period in the very next verse. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on the colt, the foal of a donkey. Of the events that we now look back on as Palm Sunday. The king who brings peace is a humble king who rides on a donkey. And Jesus was fulfilling that, those words when he rode into the, the city on Palm Sunday. The Gospel John, as we heard earlier, connects these two directly. And the Gospel says, thus the scripture was fulfilled. And he's talking about Zechariah. But as Jesus was fulfilling the scripture, he was not fulfilling the expectations of the crowd. 
because they knew this scripture and they recognized that the person who comes in on a donkey, on the foal of a donkey, this is the Messiah. But they understood the Messiah to be the, the conqueror who would throw off the Romans. And so we need to understand that when we hear the crowds lining the roads calling out, Hosanna, Hosanna, that does not mean hello. That does not mean welcome. Hosanna is Aramaic. It means save us. They're saying liberate us. Get rid of the Romans. Liberate us from the oppressors. Be the freedom fighter that we believe the Messiah to be. Do that for us right now. To the city of Jerusalem, he did not turn and go up to the Antonia Fortress where the Romans were stationed. He went the other way and went to the temple and threw over the money changers and the tables there in the courts of the temple because this visit was about dealing with the sin profiting from the perversion of the faith. Then as Zechariah kind of gives us a glimpse of that, of that incident for the rest of 9 and 10, he actually returns his gaze to the Greek period and even refers to the Greeks uh, in uh, chapter 9. Chapter 11 is the Roman period and uh, as the, 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 if our assumption is correct and I believe it is that the general outline is chronological, then chapter 11 moves us into the Roman period where something very significant is said about God's people. Chapter 11 verse 6 says, For I will no longer have pity on the people of the land, declares the Lord. I will hand everyone over to his neighbor and his king and they will oppress the land and I will not rescue them from their hands. And sure enough, it was in the Roman period where Jerusalem was once again destroyed and the nation was dissolved and actually a Roman city was built on the ruins of Jerusalem and, and the Jews were thrown out and the nation no longer, there was no longer a Jewish nation in terms of a national entity until 1948. And that happened in the Roman period. But if you glance down to verses 12 and 13, in, this, in the telling of that story, the prophet has actually paid wages for his work. And he's paid 30 pieces of silver. And it's a literary allusion to the fact that in this Roman period, of course, Judas will receive 30 pieces of silver in, in betraying Jesus. Well, after the Roman period, from chapters 12 on, he jumps to the final period of history. And these oracles and the final period of history begin with the phrase, in that day, in that day. And in that day, the day is referring to the phrase, the day of the Lord that we first encountered way back in the prophet Joel. Uh, the day of the Lord is the period of time where God kind of rest, uh, deals decisively with mankind. Man has had his day, now the Lord will have his day. And what happens in that day is a story of struggle and, and uh, uh, warfare and so forth. But significantly, I want you to look at chapter 12, verse 10. It says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Part of what will happen in that day is that the Jews will look on the one that they have pierced, in other words, Jesus, and they will recognize that he was indeed the true Messiah. And there will be a great repentance which leads uh, to a great rejoicing in faith. In other words, they will weep their way to faith. And we see a turning of the nation in the last days of the, of the, the, the nation Israel. They will be more known for their belief in Jesus as the Messiah than their unbelief. But it will be in a time of struggle, and the struggle is depicted in these verses. But if you go over to chapter 14 and verse 3, we see the Lord stepping into the struggle. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. Go down to verse 8. 
On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half to the eastern sea, Mediterranean, and half to the western sea, the Dead Sea, in the summer and the winter. Verse 9, the Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be only one Lord and his name, the only name. You see, on the, na- on the day that we celebrate today, Palm Sunday, Jesus traveled down the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem from, from the east. And there will be a day, he says, that Jesus is going to make that journey again. There will be a day when his foot touches the Mount of Olives. But when that happens, the mountain will split and the rocks will quake. And I want to show you a picture of what the Mount of Olives looks like today. If you were to go there today and stand on the Mount of Olives looking into Jerusalem, you would be, on, you'd be in a graveyard. There is a massive Jewish graveyard on the slope of the Mount of Olives facing Jerusalem. I'm standing uh, in the graveyard taking this picture. These little rocks on the graves represents visits by the family. They put a rock when they visit. Go to the next slide. The next slide, I'm looking back at the Mount of, uh, Mount of Olives from the Jerusalem side of the Kidron Valley. Do you see that massive graveyard on the side of that mountain? All bur- buried there. Why is it that the Jews choose to get buried on the Mount of Olives, the slope facing Jerusalem. Why is it that that is the most expensive per square inch real estate in the nation? You know why? They want a front row seat when the rock splits and they are buried on the Mount of Olives to wait the coming of the Messiah. But sadly, they missed his first coming, right? But they know this passage and they're waiting for the rocks to split. So Zechariah uh, tells us about that. And then in verse 16 of chapter 14, then the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And why the Feast of Tabernacles? The Feast of Tabernacles was the harvest feast where they uh, thanked the Lord for the harvest and for their guidance through the wilderness wanderings safely into the Promised Land. It's also called the Feast of Booths. And why do they, they celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles in the kingdom to come? Because the symbolism of the, is this. The wilderness of history has been safely navigated. And we now all are in the promised land as God is among us. So Zechariah takes us on a journey from immediate, an immediate call to his people to get busy and build the temple to an age to come when the priest king himself will return to earth. And it is on that day when the priest king comes that when he hears the echo of the cry, Hosanna, save us, save us, Finally, on that day, he says yes. That has always been the plan. But the plan took him to the cross. It took him to the tomb. It brought him through the resurrection. It took him to the ascension. And one day, it will bring him in victory once again.